Um, as I was saying, this rabbi was in Mexico. Uh, <laughs> well, that's really all I know. That's, that's as far as he's gone. So the mystery of the uh, missing rabbi, <laughs> we, can't, we won't be able to finish that. Well, this morning, you'll notice we moved the, uh, the uh, projector or the, what do we call those? Overhead, yeah, uh, to, a, to, to the side. We don't need that this morning, which means we're going to um, have less up here and more in your lap, which means your Bible should be open at all times this morning to Zechariah chapters 1 and 2. Uh, if the schedule goes as I hope it, I plan it today, we, we certainly we should be able to finish chapters 1 and 2, and perhaps even chapter 3, depending on how things move, which will leave, of course, uh, 4, 5, and 6 for tomorrow. So I think maybe we're going to do it. But, you know, it, uh, to really understand the Scripture, we have to understand the context into which God intruded his revelation. Remember we said at the very outset, the uniqueness about the Bible is that it's real history. That's why it's so important to insist on the historicity and the historical accuracy of the Bible because real human history serves as the arena in which God reveals his truth. And that simply is not the case with other religions. Islam teaches that God literally handed down the Quran in Arabic whole to Muhammad. As a matter of fact, the word for revelation in Islam is literally the verb to hand down. So it's a very mechanical thing, you see. And, of course, uh, all other religions are, are simply mythologies, uh, have not, no relationship to history. History is not important. For the Bible, it's very important because God is actively involved in real human history. And, of course, in the preeminent sense, Jesus Christ literally walked this planet as the divine Son of God and there is actual a crucif uh, an actual historical, dateable crucifixion and a dateable resurrection from the grave and ascension into heaven and there's going to be a great day yet which we call the second coming, right? An actual historical occurrence. These are not simply uh, mythological or or uh, spiritualized symbols that teach us something, like uh, Jesus' resurrection, according to liberalism, simply was the early church's way of saying that his teachings and his influence continues to live on, is resurrected, even though he is gone and uh, laying to rest in some forgotten tomb in Palestine. So history is very important. That's why we spend so much time uh, laying the, the groundwork. So you, I hope now you really have a sense of when this revelation took place. It's very important when you read Zechariah. Uh, when you read the book of Genesis, um, the, the Exodus, which happens, you know, a thousand or more years later, uh, doesn't help us understand Genesis so much. We have to understand Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus in their historical setting, but we see their true meaning only as it progressively is revealed and ultimately revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then it becomes very relevant for us today. So now you have some sense of even the terminology. And now when names come up and uh, events are mentioned, 
Uh, you say, oh, I know where that happens. Well, we spent a lot of time on the introductory admonition of chapter 1, verses 1 to 6 yesterday. Now we're going to pick it up at verse 7 with, of course, a, a continuing prayer that the Holy Spirit will guide us into his truth and enlighten us because we only want to speak what the Holy Spirit would have us know and not try to interject uh, our own ideas into the system. So here we begin. Let's read this section. Let me read this section and then um, we'll look at it almost in a verse-by-verse fashion. But in each case, I'm going to try to lift up the kernel of the, re- uh, of the revelation. Of course, it's all revelation, uh, but so much of it is descriptive of the setting in which the revelation takes place, and there's usually a rather uh, short, brief, direct kernel of the truth that is intended to be proclaimed. And we'll, we're going to, in each case, emphasize those a little more. Like we did yesterday when we said... Uh, don't be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. A turn from your evil ways. Uh, that was the kernel of the message yesterday. Okay. What you're about to hear is God's word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, What are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah? which you have been angry with these 70 years. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, My towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Now let's look at this a little more closely. Obviously, so much of it is narrative. What does this mean? Well, I will tell you what this means. Proclaim these words. But it's all important. You notice that uh, Zechariah even 
pinpoints the, the year. He says the second year, the 24th day of the 11th month, the month Shebat, in the second year of Darius, as though uh, Zechariah, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants readers to know, hey, this really happened at a particular time and place. Now listen to what God is doing in the process. What is the second year of Darius? By now you know, huh? What is the second year of Darius? 520, right. Because uh, 522, Darius uh, took over. Uh, Cyrus, 539, the Persian. Actually, it was the Medo-Persian. The Medes and the Persians. And there always seemed to be a little bit of an internal uh, struggle uh, to see who would gain the ascendancy. It's like, you know... um, Okay, then will the Republican Party or the Democratic Party choose the next White House uh, occupant? And Cyrus was a Mede. Uh, and so uh, apparently in this Medo-Persian invasion or conquering of the Chaldean Empire, um, after the conquering, it was the Medes who seemed to gain the ascendancy. Well, um, Cyrus ruled until about 530 not 530 in the evening, but 530 B.C. So from 539, actually he was ahead of the Medes many years before, but they weren't in control yet until they had dislodged the Chaldeans from the empire, from the power centers of the empire. So he was uh, the emperor from uh, 539 to 530, and then a fellow named Cambyses. Now his name is not in the Bible. His name is not in Scripture. But we learn that from, of course, uh, the Medo-Persian history. Cambyses uh, became uh, the emperor in 530, and and he was also one of these Medes. But by 522, the Persians gained the ascendancy, and Darius was a Persian. And from then on, it was the Persians. Darius I, later Darius II, then Xerxes I, then Artaxerxes I, then Xerxes II, then Artaxerxes II, and so from then on it was the Persians until, those of you who know your history, the Hellenistic, the Greeks, finally conquered the Persians. And then finally the Romans conquered the Greeks. And that's why at the time of our Lord Jesus, it's the Romans who are in in control of everything. And now you've got it all pieced together. All right, second year, 520 B.C. And uh, Cyrus had given the decree, of course, and that's why we have Zechariah leading a group of people to resettle Jerusalem and its environs. Uh, The word of the Lord then came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. Uh, Again, this unspecified, the word of the Lord comes to him. But then he tells us how he received this word of the Lord. During the night I had a vision. That's the first vision, the first of eight. So remember, we have to interpret the rest of this in terms of vision. In other words, not an actual actual occurrences, but every element in the vision has to have some meaning now. And now we have the difficulty of interpreting the meaning of these various symbols within the vision, the night vision. Well, here's the vision. There before me was a man riding a red horse. Now, what does that possibly mean? Not an actual rider and an actual horse now, 
but this is within the vision what Ze uh, Zechariah sees. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Um, remember, we're talking about the reestablishment of Jerusalem, so uh, we, we have to try to understand the topography of that situation too. Uh, myrtle trees, uh, according to the commentators I've read, are a, a rather small bushy tree that grows very well along creeks and uh, streams and rivers. And so um, some commentators suggest, and I think with some measure of expectation, that what this vision has portrayed is something of the Kidron Valley. You know, between Jerusalem, which is on Mount Zion, and the Mount of Olives, there is this ravine kind of thing, rather sharp depression, and then a rise up into the uh, Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was, and then over on the other side of the Mount of Olives is Bethany. So Bethany is rather close to Jerusalem, around two miles when you go around the mountain, but only about a mile if you'd go over the mountain. So if we can imagine that, after all, the Lord uses uh, uh, contexts that are familiar with uh, the prophet to whom he's revealing his will, that uh, perhaps what Zechariah is uh, seeing in this vision or what the, the relationship to the environment in this vision is, this Kidron Valley, which has this, this river that goes through it. Actually, it's more like a small creek that runs through it. And the myrtle trees grow along this uh, creek, <clears throat> which means then that he is, he is seeing a vision that sets its context rather close to Jerusalem, but not in it. Uh, which then suggests, uh, later of course it's the Lord's messengers who are these angels, suggests that the Lord is drawing nigh, the old nice old terminology, drawing nigh to Jerusalem, coming near to Jerusalem, but it, his presence is not, God's presence is not yet uh, within the city because the temple hasn't been built yet. So what Zechariah is, is, is seeing in this vision is the approaching presence of God close to the city of Jerusalem where his presence soon will be symbolized in the Holy of Holies, in the restored temple, uh, dwelling between the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. <clears throat> But it says here, um, this man he sees in the vision in the valley among the myrtle trees is riding a red horse. Now, how specific do we have to be about, well, horse and the color red? And later, of course, behind him were red, brown, and white horses. So a man in a white horse leading the procession and then many horses behind, red, white, and uh, what's the third color? Brown. <clears throat> Well, horses in Scripture often <coughs> represent uh, power, dominion, uh, military power. As a matter of fact, the people of Israel were told not to keep horses because their trust was not to be in the instruments of power and war. The cavalry, the cavalry were like the uh, armor of modern uh, armies. You know, uh, the number of tanks, that uh, were feared to be faced in the desert storm. Uh, they were much more of a threat. 
so it was considered, at least uh, the report was, that Iraq had 4,000 tanks and heavy, most of them heavy Russian tanks. Well, horses were the equivalent of the heavy armor of modern warfare. So they represented uh, power in war. As a matter of fact, there's a hint of that in verse 10. Um, oh, excuse me, no. No, chapter 10, verse 3. Uh, chapter 10, verse 3. I misread my own notes here. Now there we read, My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. See? Like a proud horse in battle. Uh, you know, a horse that suggests the, uh, on the leadership of a powerful army. So there's a hint of that later in Zechariah itself. That's one thing. Horses represent power, dominion, especially in war. Uh, secondly, horses in the Bible represent uh, prestige, uh, wealth, uh, preeminence. Uh, Solomon, you know, he got to be very proud. And one of the things he had to do to show his ascendancy to other nations is to have a, uh, uh, many, many horses. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 26 to 29, we have a, a description of the cavalry at the disposal of King Solomon. Uh, that's 1 Kings uh, chapter 10 verses 26 to 29. We read, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Archaeologists have discovered, you know, the, uh, what we now call the stables of Solomon, way back, way in the south of Judea. He built these enormous... Uh, uh, stables to maintain his, uh, his prized horses. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Qui. Uh, Qui is, is, is a, a nation to uh, probably Sicily probably Sicily, so he went that far. And uh, the royal merchants purchased them from Kui. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. That's a lot of money. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. So um, Solomon was in the horse business. It was a symbol of his prestige and his wealth and his power among the nations. And, of course, it was a violation of the, of, the, of the will of the Lord who said, your trust must be in me and not in horses. There's one of the Psalms, our, our, we trust not in the strength of a horse. And then thirdly, horses represent the means of uh, discovery, of transportation, and especially of spreading information. In the early West, of course, the Pony Express, the horse, was the informational contact between the widely uh, separated settlements of the West. And so it was in the ancient world. Um, the uh, Persians used swift 
steeds to bring in messages. Remember, they couldn't call up on the telephone or had no telegraph. Uh, they didn't have uh, anything, any, any of these means of uh, keeping informed of what's going on. And especially when the armies were in the field at great distances, every week or so they'd send a, a fast steed back to the capital city to give the report of what was going on. So horses represent informational contact. And uh, I think that's, it's the third of these uh, biblical symbols of horses that uh, is emphasized here. Uh, they are the source of uh, supervision and reporting back to headquarters. So um, that's the way we have to understand these horses here. Now you say, what about the colors? Well, um, the colors, uh, to the best of our understanding anyway, probably simply repre represent directions. In this case, there are only three directions. And that would fit the Palestinian setting because to the west, was only the Mediterranean Sea. But when it talks about messages, method, messages coming from all directions, three is about all you can imagine in this setting. So I don't know which color represents which direction in this case, but there are three directions, namely north and east and south. From the east, of course, that's the Transjordan uh, area. Uh, the, on the other side of Jordan, uh, the enemy of Israel, um, enemies of Israel often came from the east. From the north, of course, that would be the primary invasion routes of Assyria and the Chaldeans and now the Persians because they went first uh, west and then they came south down into Palestine. And from the south, you have Egypt. So um, these uh, represent all these directions this, the, of the messages that are coming from all directions into the area of Jerusalem. Now the question comes in verse 9. I asked, what are these, my Lord? Now he's, he's asking, I'm suggesting some of the direction in which we have to understand this already. But he asked, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. This is all sort of narrative. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. So the horses are to be seen as the ones that, are, that the Lord directs to go throughout the earth. For what? And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. These horses and horsemen that have been spread throughout the world, they reported. They're bringing the messages back. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Well, let's pause there just a bit and ask ourselves what that means. To begin with, the word at rest and in peace suggests a settled condition. A settled condition. Um, during, I mentioned a, a bit earlier that a fellow named Cambyses, that's C-A-M-B-Y-S-E-S, -E Cambyses succeeded Cyrus. But uh, there was a struggle for power for authority, the ascendancy, as I suggested. And Cambyses' period of reign, about eight years, was a, was a rather unsettled time. He was never really ra very firmly in control. There was always disturbance. There was always conflict. 
until Darius gains the ascendancy, and then he, he was able to bring order out of relative chaos. Uh, so, given that historical situation, this report that throughout in 520 now, two, day, two years after Darius has settled things down, uh, the reports can come back from all directions. Because remember, Persia controlled all of the Middle East, all the way down to Egypt. That every, the whole world, the whole civilized world, the whole world with which Zechariah and his people had to do, the Bible uses that kind of uh, inclusive terminology often when it doesn't mean the absolute total planet, you know, like uh, when Jesus is born, uh, Caesar Augustus declares that the whole world has to be taxed. Well, there were Aztec Indians in South America and they weren't taxed, and there were Mongols out in uh, China and they weren't taxed, but we know what that scripture means, the whole civilized Roman world. And we use uh, terminology like that uh, uh, too. Well, here too, the whole civilized world of the Persian Empire is now at rest and in peace. Why is that important? Why is that important? Well, uh, civil war and uh, war uh, of any kind is expensive, isn't it? It's very costly. My, uh, look what uh, the military buildup in the 80s has done to our country. We are now the, the, the largest creditor nation in the world. And in 1980, we were the largest debtor nation in the world. So in just, uh, well, really eight years of the Reagan administration, we turned from having more nations owe us more than any other nation in the world to now we owe other nations more than any other nation in the world because of this enormous military buildup, largely. Well, war is terribly expensive. And uh, Cyrus had declared that and Darius later reaffirmed that not only could the temple be rebuilt, but they would get some government grants to help build, rebuild it. And uh, Darius, remember, you know, the, that, that, that interesting history, you, be sure to read Ezra and Nehemiah now after this uh, family conference this week because that'll so much enrich your understanding of what went on here. Um, uh, you'll recall that the uh, Sanballat and Tobias and some of the Canaanite tribes, they try to make it as difficult as possible for the Jews to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem 75 years later, the walls about 75 years later. And they finally appealed to the emperor. And they said, look, you, do you realize what these Jews are doing? They're rebuilding the military defenses of Jerusalem, the walls. And... Um, the king had, the, had his secretarial staff check into the archives, and lo and behold, they discovered that uh, Cyrus had decreed, said it was okay, and once the law is made by the Medes and Persians, it has to stand. So Darius reaffirms it, and then tells these Canaanite tribal peoples who were protesting the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple first and then Jerusalem, he says, hey, you have to help them. Part of your uh, sales tax, uh, the sales tax is 7%, 1% goes to the Jews. You don't even have to send that back to, to, to Persia. So you see, the, uh, not only were they allowed to rebuild, but there were some government grants permitted and there was a tax base allowed for its support. 
I mean, in the Lord's wonderful providence, his, his work is going to pro- make progress, and even pagan tithes <laughs> are going to help. So, uh, so it's so important now that everything is at rest and in peace, a settled condition, so that the uh, government grants, the expense of military ventures is less now, government grants are more likely to come through and assist. Which brings us to verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. There are two angels here, aren't there? I have waited until this verse to mention this. Uh, One is an angel of the Lord, And that angel of the Lord is the one standing among the myrtle trees on the red horse. The other is a messenger interpreter, the angel who talked with Zechariah. Now, I don't know which is which. You see, sometimes all we know is that there are two angels, one called the angel of the Lord and the other the angel who talked with me. Sometimes in the Old Testament, but not always, a reference to the angel of the Lord is what we call in theology, if you can handle this, a pre-incarnational representation of the second person of the Trinity. Which simply means the action of the second person of the Trinity before he took upon himself the form of a human being born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary. Because, after all, He is the eternal son, right? Now, the reason we come to those conclusions is because there are places in the Bible where it's it's so plain, so it's clear, so clear that a reference to the angel of the Lord is a divine appearance. That's the case, for instance, with with, um, Manoah and his wife who are told that Samson is going to be born to them And that's the angel of the Lord who receives worship, who accepts worship, who accepts a sacrifice. And that may only be given to the divine. And then we have the case of uh, Daniel's three friends in the the fiery furnace. Uh, Shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go. I mean, uh, (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the way I was taught in the child to remember those. Shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go. Maybe I see some of you have a similar smile. Well, they were cast into the fiery furnace, right? And the the emperor comes and says, I want to see what's happening. He looks in that fiery furnace, and he said, Hey, I thought we threw three people and three rebels in there. I see four. And uh, one is like unto the angel of the Lord. And a few verses uh, later, it says, And... uh, Uh, God's presence was there in the fiery furnace. So the angel of the Lord is identified as the Son of God. So on some occasions, the term angel of the Lord has reference to a divine appearance, what we called a theophany. Huh? Theophany, right. One of those ways in which God reveals himself. But uh, we have to have, of course, more, uh, more... contextual evidence, and so we can't really come to a clear conclusion here 
whether this angel of the Lord on the red horse leading all the other messengers is a theophany or not. So all we can say is that there are two angels here, one of whom is called the angel of the Lord and the other is the messenger. And this messenger says uh, the time is right. Uh, no longer will Jerusalem be rubble. Uh, the period of discipline is over. The 70 years is up. And now uh, the Lord speaks kind and comforting words uh, by, through the angel messenger who talked to me. Then the angel, verse 14, who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And now you get this sort of the... the uh, central uh, piece of the revelation. Not any more revelation and the rest less because it's all the revealed word and even the narrative we see as part of the way in which God reveals his truth to us. We have to be very careful uh, not saying that one part of the Bible is more important than the other. It's one of the reasons why I'm a little squeamish about red-letter Bibles. I have one, as a matter of fact, in the room right now, a small one that I carry with me more handily, and I, I just couldn't find the same size Bible, or maybe my wife couldn't find it because she bought it for me, <laughs> uh, except for the red letters. But that's... Pardon? Is that right? I have. That's where Doris bought this one, and I... And I took it back and I said, I want a black letter Bible. And they said, that one doesn't come in. Okay, well anyway, uh, I'm sure if you have your right, your theology, your biblical perspective correct, it's not going to bother you. But we have to be very careful about saying, this is more important and that is less important in the Scripture. And that's where the liberals have gone. The Sermon on the Mount is important, but uh, miracles, of course, that was, that's just... Uh, mythology, miracles really didn't happen at all. That was the early church way of describing its, its faith. But still, you see, when you have this contextual term and then you have a, a clear statement, then we have to focus our attention more completely on that. And here it is in verse 14. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. The divine jealousy. Jealousy is not always evil, even for human beings. Uh, God certainly has a right to be jealous when those who have committed themselves to him are unfaithful to him. Uh, jealousy, remember the second commandment, tells us that our God is a jealous God. Thou shalt not bow down unto them, nor serve them. Images. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Jealous of the affections of his covenant partner. You're, you have a right to be jealous if your spouse shows more attention and affection to someone else than you, to whom she or he has pronounced his or her fidelity. We have a right to be jealous. Jealous of children who think more of other adults than their own parents. Maybe sometimes we give them reason to that. And God above all has a, a re, has a, is a just God and a holy God. 
with a righteous jealousy when his people show affection and interest and worship and commitment to that which dishonors him or is something other than he is. He is a jealous God and he's jealous when his people are um, abused by others, which is the second part of this, this statement. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. Uh, that word feel secure, again, uh, is simple, similar to that are at ease. That, that security that's described here um, means nations that are rather content with themselves, untroubled by their sin and by their persecution of God's covenant people. It suggests uh, an arrogant self-confidence. Uh, we, have, we have something of that sentiment described in Psalm 120. Yes, I've got to make sure. Yes. Um, in Psalm 123, it, it says, Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant, now, those, those are uh, uh, synonyms, uh, this, this sense of, uh, of at ease or untroubled by one's own sins are synonyms of pride and arrogance. And here in the Psalms, the psalmist uh, decries the fact that the, the covenant community was the object of this contempt and arrogance from, from these sources. So even though these nations had unwittingly fulfilled the divine mission to discipline the covenant community, uh, they, they went too far. They went too far. And the Lord says, that's enough. And now I'm going to restore my people and uh, I'm going to deal now with the nations that, uh, that have been more uh, angry and uh, more cruel than... They should have been. They added to the calamity. They went too far. They went further than expected. Therefore, verse 16, this is what the Lord says, I will return to, to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt. This again is a reiteration of the, of the, of the promise that the house will be rebuilt. Now, when God returns with mercy, it means that he will reestablish his presence among his people, and the temple, of course, symbolized uh, the presence of God. It was not like a pagan temple. Pagans believed that, the, that the, the God actually was housed in that temple. Not so the Lord. He, I fill heaven and earth. And when Solomon's temple was uh, consecrated, Solomon prayed that marvelous prayer, and he said, Lord, we know that a temple made by hands can, con can contain you, and yet, Lord, may your presence be experienced, be seen there in the Holy of Holies. So God's presence was symbolized in the temple, though, of course, he fills heaven and earth. So he could not be restricted to a temple made by hands. But God's presence will be reestablished. Now the second half of verse 16. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. The measuring line, you know, the construction people, all, in order to make sure the walls are true, they have to have that line 
to make sure it's, it's, it's straight, everything is straight, and every corner is appropriate. Well, that means that Jerusalem, too, will be rebuilt. As it happens, the temple was built first, and it took, in God's providence, some years before a succeeding Persian emperor made a decree which allowed the rebuilding of the city. But it happened, here's the prophecy, and it certainly did happen. Uh, we're going to see in the next chapter, more specifically, how the city was to be uh, rebuilt and reestablished. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Uh, we, we can't distinguish too, too much now. We have to be careful not to distinguish too much between Zion and Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion, so the mountain was named Zion, and Jerusalem was at the, at, mostly at the top of it, not quite at the top because it, it moves back to the north and uh, so it didn't actually fill the whole Mount Zion. But the Jews l liked to repeat things, especially if they were important. And so Jerusalem and Mount Zion uh, we see as one and the same source. So there you have it, uh, the prophecy of the rebuilding. The message comes forth and the results are guaranteed. Which brings us to the last section now of uh, chapter 1. We'll read starting with verse 18. Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? Just like the horses, what are these? Now, what are these? And the interpretive angel responds, He answered me, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, What are these coming to do? He answered, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one could raise his head but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Okay, so here's another little vision, vision number two. And it's a vision of horns and uh, uh, craftsmen or workmen. Well, by now, of course, it's all falling into place nicely, isn't it? Horns, in the scripture, horns are very frequently, well, they're used for two senses. A, a, a horn of plenty sense, but primarily in the sense of power and strength, like the horns of a wild ox, for instance. Invincible strength. Let me give you some biblical illustrations. You know, whenever we see symbolism in the Bible, as much as possible, we should look in other passages of the Bible to try to understand that symbolism. For instance, the book of Revelation is a, is a the whole, total book is a vision and it has so much symbolism in it. Uh, so where, how are we going to determine what that symbolism is? Well, look through the rest of the Bible where the same symbols are used. Compare scripture with scripture. That's a reformed hermeneutical or interpretive principle. So if we want to know what the horns signify, uh, I've just picked up a few. There are very, very many, especially in the Psalms. But listen to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17. 
there we read, in majesty he is like a firstborn bull. Who is Moses speaking about? It's the blessing that God gives, uh, that uh, God gives, yes, Moses gives, to the Israelites before his death, before Moses' death. And when he comes to Joseph, uh, of course, Joseph had two tribes named after him, Ephraim and, and Manasseh. He says of Joseph, In majesty he is like a firstborn bull. His horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he will gore the nations, even those at the ends of the earth. So there's the promise that uh, Joseph will have a power. Let me give you one from the psalm. Psalm chapter 75 um, verse 10. I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So the strength of the wicked will be dissipate, and the strength of the righteous will be lifted up, be increased. So horns suggest invincible strength. So when in this vision he looks up, <clears throat> Ask the angel, what are these, these four horns? These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Well, now you know historically what that means. The invincible strength of the, of the nations that harassed Jerusalem, and you know them, Assyria was first, scattered Israel. It's interesting, and I don't know why, the, the, the sequence is sort of reversed here. Judah, or, uh, yes, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem because Israel went into captivity first under the Assyrians. So the first horn was the horn of Assyria. Then there was the horn of the Chaldeans. Then the horn, the strength of the Persians. And the fourth, in my judgment, is Egypt, because Egypt did harass them. We noticed how uh, in this brief uh, review of the history yesterday in this, uh, in this overhead that uh, Egypt uh, took... Uh, Jehoahaz, uh, captive. And so Egypt was coming from the south. The four horns then, from all these directions, uh, the destructive power to which um, Israel and then Judah and finally Jerusalem, it really was in that order, Israel first, then Judah except for Jerusalem was allowed to exist for a while, and then finally Jerusalem itself was destroyed, uh, comes to this uh, disaster. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Verse 20, I asked, what are these coming to do? Coming to do. Craftsmen, the, the, the terminology in Hebrew simply means workmen. Uh, any, a, a builder. A builder. He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah. The repetition, so typical of Hebrew again. In an answer, you repeat the first part. The, the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head. That is, the, the destruction but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. So uh, what this second vision uh, says is despite the destructive power of the past, there will be workmen coming to rebuild what was once destroyed. Well, it's a little early, believe it or not, but rather than move on to verse uh, chapter 2 and then break into that, uh, let's ask for a few questions and uh, 
and then we'll have uh, an earlier break and maybe start earlier at the 11 o'clock hour. Huh? Any questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that certainly is a, a legitimate way of looking at things, but uh, it's just that I'm a little reluctant, a little hesitant to be, to be um, concrete when, when the evidence doesn't seem to, the contextual evidence doesn't, doesn't give enough reason to make that reference, but could very, very well be, especially since there are two angels, because then the messenger angel, the interpreter angel, becomes the liaison between the angel of the Lord, or the divine presence, and the, the prophet. Could very well be. But they, they are distinguished. They certainly are uh, uh, distinguished. It's not just one angel with sort of two different references. Yes? were assisted, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that uh, suggests uh, a different uh, relationship between Israel, between some of these powers and forth. Uh, I, it's just that uh, I have trouble thinking of a, of a fourth, you know, that's all. And maybe the fourth, uh, which again, so often the Bible, suggest completeness every direction but of course then it would it would not comport with the three horses as directions yes well yes the Arameans yeah Aram but Assyria never really took them captive but yeah they did a lot of damage they're forever harassing them especially if you look into the the period, the pre-exilic period, it had a great deal of warfare, but it was sort of a standoff, like it is today. <laughs> uh, but that that could very well be. When, when uh, Isaiah comes to Ahaz, uh, Ahaz is in terror of uh, uh, the Syrians who have taken over the northern kingdom and who have acquired Jerusalem, including the northern kingdom, to take over Jerusalem. Oh, sure. The the Syrians were a constant threat. Yeah, that could very well be too. Others? Well, let's take a little earlier break and. Uh, oh, excuse me. Well, I think it simply parallels the four destructive powers now, and uh, and if there were only three, you would, you would get the impression that it would be only a partial restoration from the previous damage. Which Darius are you talking about? 
Well, there are a lot of them, of course. There, for instance, at the very early time, there was a Darius and a Cyrus at the very beginning, see? But apparently, right off, as soon as they um, 